Hello and welcome to another episode of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, in a prior podcast about a month or so ago, you mentioned in an offhand comment um, that when we're doing altar servers and connecting who should be on the altar, that you said it, it should primarily be you know, boys. And you said essentially that that should be a podcast within itself. So I wanted to give that an opportunity because I have had some people ask about um, why that is. I know that you started by mentioning that there's just some basic biological developmental stuff that boys don't develop at the same rate in the same type of skills as girls. And once you're a little kid and you get that shock of embarrassment or doing something wrong you don't want to do it anymore kind of what we just mentioned the last podcast if you get a little bit of pain you're not going to want to fulfill the benefit and i wanted to give a chance to have you kind of expound upon that thought about the importance of of you know being an altar server of of why you might want to consider having your child do that and why it's important to the church. So I wanted to kind of use this platform to talk about that. Great. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think it is an important topic, and I'm grateful for you bringing it back. I felt bad. Uh, I remember I, leaving it hanging there a little bit, but I knew it would take us down a, a rabbit hole that we didn't have time for at that moment. So it's, it is worth reflecting on. Uh, it depends... First of all, on on some understanding of why the priesthood is reserved to men, and that's a, a dogmatic teaching of the Church. St. John Paul II, in his uh, apostolic letter, uh, Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, that's a whole, sacred holy ordination, holy orders, um, he uh, he he declared as as an infallible statement that the church did not have the authority to ordain women based on the experience of of 2000 years and based on the example of Christ himself and there's a that particular letter is fairly brief but he refers back to a letter written by uh, St Paul the 6th called Inter Insignores, which was a response to the Anglican Church deciding to ordain women to the priesthood. And so he gives a fair number of explanations, several um, several pages of explanations about why this is not possible. Uh, and so one could equate it not with uh, some social convention, but actually with the same kind of impossibility about men having babies. You know, it's just, there's something fundamental structurally about it. Priesthood is not uh, merely a function. It's not merely a job. It is something even more essential to the structure of the, of the faith and the sacraments. And so it's uh, more appropriate to see it like uh, men not having babies. Women can't be priests. I mean, just that kind of fundamental, uh, reality. Just to say, um, in, in part, I'm going to base my answer just hoping that uh, people have already accepted that point. We could spend the whole podcast just talking about that. And it's uh, one of those things that if people have a certain mindset of, well, 
it is just a job and women can do it better. And anyway, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole attitude and, and uh, rhetoric about all that, that is, it's a little hard to talk about in the abstract, but easier to address people's particular questions or misconceptions. But I'll just take a little stab at that up front just to talk about, because in order to talk about alter boys, we also need to understand how this is kind of an extension of the priest. Basically, everything in the sanctuary should be an extension of the priest, and everything in the uh, in the pews is an extension of the church as as bride. So that's sort of what it boils down to. We know that priests do a lot of stuff. You know, priests are counselors and priests are preachers and priests are teachers of the faith and priests have authority and they make decisions. And it's really easy to reduce priesthood to any of these particular functions. But priesthood in its essence is uh, a particular configuration to Christ, who is the head of the church as the husband is the head of of uh, the body of of his wife, so the oh, that's our, also blurring categories and, and setting off landmines. Probably that I just said that, but anyway, just drawing from Ephesians chapter five, talking about the husband should be towards his wife the way that Christ is towards the church, laying down his life from, for her, cleansing her in a bath of water and the word, presenting him to him presenting her to himself, spotless and without blemish. Um, So for the sake of making her beautiful, reverencing her beauty, caring for her and serving her, that the husband should have the attitude of Christ laying down his life. So crucifixion is the posture of the husband. But in that same structure of teaching, which I think women don't emphasize enough, demanding that their husbands sacrifice more for them and have that attitude of reverential service and self-emptying love. I think we so quickly get stuck in some other areas of that passage that we miss what's so beautiful there. I mean, really so beautiful. Every man really deeply wants to do that. He wants to he wants to give his life. He wants to be the hero who sacrifices everything to protect and and provide for and and reverence and 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 make even more beautiful the and and reveal the beauty of his bride. I mean, that kind of hero posture is is something so profound, and it captures the hearts of men who, if they can commit themselves to that kind of uh, responsibility and and uh, relationship toward their their wives, their future wives. Wow, it just brings all kinds of things alive in their hearts. And uh, society, you know, the world, everything, everybody benefits when there's even one relationship like that. And so anyway, the um, that's that's more essentially what priesthood is about, is, is a man taking on that role of Christ, living out the crucifixion by uh, laying his life down, standing in a way that reminds the the bride the the priest is ultimately a sacrament he's a reminder he's a sign that god also fills out and makes real so the priest just has to look the part we might say and what is the part that the priest has to look he has to look like the bridegroom he has to look like christ who came as as a man to reveal the father 
Christ came to reveal the Father. He says, I came not to reveal myself. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I came not to speak my own word. I came to speak the words of the Father. Uh, I came not to do my own will. I came to do the will of the Father. He does everything to reveal the Father. And so he comes among us as a man in order to reveal the Father. So, so the priest, likewise, is united with Christ, who came as a man to reveal the Father. And so the priest has to look the part. Now, no priest in himself, no man in himself, is, has everything that Christ has. No man in himself is God the Father or is Jesus Christ. So, but he can look the part. So it's just like, you know, bread. Jesus used bread for the Eucharist. So the bread that we have for the Eucharist needs to, needs to play the part. It needs to be enough bread and the wine needs to be wine so that it can play the part of the bread and wine that Jesus used. And by playing the part, looking the part, it then can become the part through the sacrament, through the rite of the church. So what the priest needs to be fundamentally is he needs to look the part. And as much as, as wonderful as women are, and as much as they play the, as they, they, they can serve the functions of lots of things, counseling, and they could be great preachers and leaders, and we don't contest any of that. And, and it's totally fine. Uh, and, and those things, now we've been held back by some societal standards and some misconceptions and uh, welcoming women into some of those roles to, anyway, women have been in a lot of those roles and as, as mothers and, and Lord only knows how many, how many men have been uh, really directed and formed by their mothers, you know, and how many priests and bishops and everything else have been formed by their mothers. But anyway, uh, that aside, there certainly have been areas that women can do a wonderful job. I think of Edith Stein as an example. She was a tremendous, the best student of uh, Edmund Husserl, who is the father of phenomenology, a tremendous uh, researcher, author, uh, ultimately, a, a tremendous philosopher, and yet she couldn't get a job as a university professor because she was a woman. So that's the kind of injustice that we don't need. Uh, and in terms of function, women can play the role, but but again, priesthood, it's a sacrament. It's not primarily about function. It's about the sacrament. It's about presenting the part. And so a man looks more like a bridegroom and a father than a woman does, no matter how wonderful she is. She doesn't look like a bridegroom or a father. So that's the kind of the crux of the thing, that the male face matters, that the male uh, sex matters in itself to present something, to present something that's much more than itself. In some ways, it's almost better if if, uh, if priests are like St. John Vianney, not that bright, uh, barely passing seminary, uh, not all together, uh, but it is in our weakness that our power is perfected, as St. Paul said, uh, and it shows that Christ's grace is sufficient for us. He provides in that. All right, so I just said way too much. Read Interin Signores if you want uh, a little bit more description of all of that. One thing that people say, just the last point that I'll make on this, is that Christ was limited by cultural expectations at his time, and that's the reason that he chose 12 men as apostles. And Paul VI points out, Christ was limited by no cultural expectations, which is why the Jews killed him, ultimately. He was not bound by people's view, and in fact, he called many women followers 
very contrary to cultural expectations. He spent a lot of time with tax collectors and sinners, contrary to cultural expectations. He preached a message which which undermined their understanding of the law, the cultural uh, interpretations of the law, going so far against cultural expectations that ultimately they tried him and crucified him by saying he violated the very law, which of course he wrote himself. He knew the interpretation of the law. He was God. <laughs> so he was not bound by cultural expectations. It's a, it's a ridiculous uh, objection. And in fact, contrary to women, women were not acceptable as witnesses. He called Mary Magdalene to be the first witness of the resurrection. Not a bright move if he was trying to live by cultural expectations, but clearly valuing the role of women and the importance of women to call the apostles even to be who they were supposed to be. But he didn't say, Mary Magdalene, you're going to replace Judas because he betrayed me and you remained faithful to me. He said, you go and tell my brothers that uh, what's what you have seen and heard. So he made her a witness, but he didn't make her an apostle. Anyway, those are the kinds of things that the church reads and gives John Paul II ultimately the uh, conviction to make that dogmatic statement that that ordination is reserved to men alone. So, again, people may have more objections to that. There's worth more study and discussion. I would just say, pray about it, though. Take up that question. Ask the Lord for understanding, rather than just coming at it. I think so much in our women's rights movements, which are you know, there's so many wonderful things about that. And as I said things that make room for Edith Steins in university classrooms. Thank God. There's something fantastic about that. But uh, sometimes we're so caught up in women's rights that we think, you know, there, there should be no limitations. Um, of course, there are limitations. I can't have a baby. <laughs> there are limitations. God has built in limitations. So um, anyway, I would just encourage people to pray about that. But having said all that, ultimately the dynamic of the mass is the dynamic of a bridegroom initiating love for his bride. So the fundamental structure of the Mass is Christ, first of all, proclaiming his love, which is expressed through the scriptures, and making his marriage proposal to uh, the the bride, uh, the bride-to-be. And then the bride-to-be is making her response through the creed by saying, I believe. It's wonderful that word believe is comes from the German believen, which means to love or even to be in love. Or in uh, Latin, credo, I believe, is from the words cor and dare, to give the heart. So Christ as the bridegroom makes his marriage proposal in the readings, in the liturgy of the word, and then the response to, and in the homily. And in the response to that, in the creed, the bride gives her yes to the bridegroom, gives her yes to Christ. That is the bridal church, the church in herself. And every human soul really is is bridal in that sense, because God is the one who initiates. God is the one who makes the, the proposal. So that proposal is made and received in words in the first part of the Mass, and then the pro- proposal is initiated 
in and given in the sacrament of the Eucharist. That's where the bridegroom lays down his life for his bride and sacrifices himself, giving his body for her. And then she gives her yes to him when we hear body of Christ. Amen. That amen is the, the bride's response to receive the bridegroom's body into her body. So again, the marital imagery is intentional and explicit and hopefully is understood in my saying it in that way. So he first of all gives his word and then he gives his body. He initiates both of those movements. The bride receives his word and gives her yes and then receives his body and gives her yes to that. And then that body in her, just like the man's body in his wife, becomes fruitful in her. It gestates in her as she goes forth and allows the uh, the body of, of the bridegroom, the body of Christ, to become alive in her and then to bear fruit in works of charity as she then carries the... Oh, the, the holiness, the, the sanctity of, of, the, of Christ into the world through her actions, through her words, through her uh, et cetera, et cetera, through the, the life of the church, which is the extension of the body of Christ out into the world, out into time. So that's the structure of the mass. And so what's happening in the sanctuary is all the action of the bridegroom. It's all the action, the initiating love of the man, of Christ. It's the initiating love that's taking place. And so everything in the in the sanctuary is masculine in that sense. And if there were only one person in the sanctuary, it would be the priest. If there have to be more people in the sanctuary, then it should be these emanations of the priest. And that's what makes us think of, uh, of a wedding, for example. Generally, the man wants, uh, well, anyway, the, the, the tradition is always that the man has groom's men and a best man. He doesn't have groom's women and a best woman uh, who are standing next to him because he wants to, you know, the, the bridegroom is sort of more than himself. So he stands there with several other men that you can sort of see the full masculinity. And they're basically dressed all the same. He's standing apart slightly, but they're also wearing basically the same clothing. The bride is standing there and she has her bridesmaids. And they are dressed, well, a little bit differently, but the bridesmaids are all generally just the same. And then, uh, you know, uh, some usually some connection with, uh, with the bride. But there is several women representing the bride, several men representing the bridegroom. And the same should be true in the, in the context of the Mass. In the sanctuary, you have the bridegroom, and then you have several men who are representing the, the bridegroom. So... Again, this is all at the level of uh, of the mass, and and you know if you went to a papal mass, you would have in the sanctuary the pope, and you'd have some bishops and priests, and then you'd have some seminarians serving. So it's all a lot of man, because what the man is doing is he's giving his word, he's getting down on his knee, he's asking his bride's hand in marriage, he's doing these beautiful things that make us, uh, our hearts move. It's like the best of our masculinity, you know, and then he's laying down his life. He's sacrificing his body and he's giving his body as a gift to his bride. So it's all of these kind of masculine things that are happening in the, in the sanctuary. And so in a parish, 
for uh, young men, for for boys and young men to be brought into and, and to learn, there's a, a kind of formation of masculinity that's forming them in the best of what men have to offer and is is uh, relating them to the to that sacramental action, to that sacred action that's taking place. And so uh, that's good formation. And, and I can tell you, you know, I have friends who are uh, the, the pastor of cathedrals and different dioceses, and they've, uh, they've developed a culture of altar boys. And, you know, the, the boys get challenged by the different actions of the mass. It was even more the case in the, in the old rite of the mass that was complicated. You got to memorize some things in Latin. You got to remember where to move and what to do. And there was a lot going on there. It was a good challenge for them. And young boys, they like a good challenge like that. So, you know, making some complicated things and and then a, a whole structure of the older boys leading the younger boys and and then having a sense of kind of growing up in the ranks. And, you know, usually the littlest ones don't know what the heck they're doing. They're kind of like wandering around a little bit and the older boys look after them and that whole dynamic works really nicely. Uh, now, incorporating women into that, first of all, the church has said in Redemptiona Sacramentum, uh, 2004 document, the church said, where there are not already altar girls, they should not be introduced. So the church has expressed a preference for altar boys. And that's, a, you know, that's in a definitive document of the magisterium. Uh, now, they didn't want to just say, get rid of all the altar girls, because that would be a pastoral disaster. It's not, it's not like priesthood. I mean, it's not fundamentally impossible to have altar girls. Uh, but it's, uh, it's it's not it doesn't give the fullness of the sign as I just described, and then it also has a kind of sociological complication. Girls mature faster than boys, and so the ten-year-old altar girl is going to be more coordinated. She's going to remember things better, and she's going to be intimidating to the ten-year-old altar boy. Also, boys and girls, you know, girls are have cooties and they're gross and whatever else. I mean, when when children are that age, there there isn't that kind of natural uh, commingling of of boys and girls, and it's the the girls just again outshine the boys because they they mature a little bit earlier, and then the boys are, have this awkwardness and they don't want to be around the girls, and so you end up at a sociological level just driving boys out of the program. Now you could do things like have a group of altar girls and then have a group of altar boys and keep them separate and uh, allow them to have their own kind of uh, dynamics going on there and things like that. But um, again, the the fundamental thing is that having girls in the sanctuary mixes the sign. It confuses the sign. It doesn't give that fuller sense. You know, it's like having a bridegroom and then uh, be assisted by bridesmaids. And it's just a, a confusion of the sign that that ultimately uh, waters things down in a way that's that's not helpful. Wow. So I just talked for the entire time. Sorry about that. Uh, but if you had any quick follow-ups that we could that we could uh, bring to, hopefully that was uh, clear enough to communicate some of the ideas. It certainly was. So I, I thank you for for giving us that explanation. There, there's obviously a lot to it. And I think the core of what I'm getting from there, aside from obviously being the, the sign, but the core is is exactly what you're saying about it being a marriage, Christ giving himself to the church in the in as you use throughout this explanation, 
about an example being therein of a marriage and that keeping it in line is important. And then I'm presuming that what your goal is, is to, is to train and develop these boys to become closer to Christ by being up there as part of the mass on every, every Sunday basis. Yeah, that's right. And they learn to see themselves, imagine themselves in the in the role of the priest, and they uh, develop a deeper sense of the, the movements of the Mass and what's happening on the altar. I know a number of people who served Mass as children in the old rite, they can still go through all the prayers in Latin by memory, you know, from from memory it's uh it really does make such a deep impression so and and as we know i mean women are more likely to have faith and i think that's because of that you know the the bridal church is feminine and so women associate with that more spontaneously it's men are less likely to have religious practice and to to grow into all that. So the more that you can get them early and make them part of it and get them engaged, again, sociologically, it just makes a lot of sense to to do it that way. Well, it makes a lot of sense in every capacity. As we've discussed many times throughout this episode, the better your relationship with Christ, the better you are. So is there a better gift that you could give your child? So on that note, we do thank everyone for listening. Uh, We will be with you here again next week. We thank you guys for being here.